For as the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is unveiling Jesus Christ. Greetings and welcome to another podcast on Unveiling Jesus Christ. I'm John Cassinet. I'll be your podcast host as usual. And tonight we're going to be talking about the book of Revelation chapters 20 through 22. This is the last series of chapters that we'll be discussing as part of the Come Follow Me curriculum here in the month of December. And I'll talk a little bit about what we're going to do uh, in the coming months um, after we get to the end of the uh, discussion today. Today I begin very briefly with uh, a mention of verses 1 through 3 in Revelation chapter 20. I actually discussed these verses in the podcast from last week where we have Satan being bound during the period of the thousand-year millennium, and this marked the end of spiritual Armageddon. And that's why I discussed it last week, because the first three verses in chapter 20 really should have been attached to and made part of the last verses in chapter 19. So I'm only going to mention them here for the purpose of telling you that I'm not going to be discussing them today, and uh, <clears throat> I didn't want you all to think that I was losing my mind because I didn't cover the first three verses. Now it's well possible that I am losing my mind, but not in this limited sense. So today we're going to move uh, right on to verse number four and cover uh, the doctrine of the millennium. Now the millennium in the book of Revelation garners only a very brief discussion by John the Revelator. In fact, the entire millennium uh, in his discussion is covered in the in verses 4 through 6. So a thousand year period of time is going to be covered in these three short verses and it's kind of noteworthy that the verses don't even mention the word millennium. We can just tell from the context of the material that that's what's going on, but the word isn't actually even mentioned in these verses. And frankly, John's primary purpose for discussing the millennium in these three verses is essentially to give the context for his discussion and description of the first resurrection. And so we, I'll get into that in more detail as we proceed through the discussion today. But I wanted to spend a little bit of time kind of going outside these particular three verses and giving you a little bit more detail about the doctrine and overview of the millennium. It has many different views and interpretations. Uh, many people, uh, as they interpret the meaning of the millennium, spiritualize it into some type of metaphor. They, uh, uh, it has no specific literal application as far as they are concerned. However, if you are a millenarian, then you would believe in the literal period of Christ's personal reign on the earth after the second coming. This was a belief that was held by the Pharisees who lived at the time of Christ. In other words, they believed not only in a literal resurrection, but in the period of the thousand-year millennium. And it was a pretty controversial doctrine at that time and much opposed by the uh, sect known as the Sadducees. 
The church, however, because it is a true doctrine, that is the literal existence of a millennium after the second coming of Jesus Christ, it was part of the accepted doctrine in Christ's ancient church. And so what happens is because of this particular doctrine, after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, when the Jews uh, started persecuting the uh, ancient members of the church, uh, it was largely the Sadducees that were most vehement in their persecution of the Christian church because the church adopted this doctrine of the millennium and the Sadducees did not believe in either the resurrection or a millennium. And so they were the first to kind of step forward and, uh, and bring a lot of controversy against the church, whereas the Pharisees, uh, at least in the early stages of Jewish persecution against the church, tended to be more lenient and sided with them because they shared this particular doctrine. Eventually, of course, it, it didn't really matter, and both Sadducees and Pharisees joined forces to uh, persecute the early church, and uh, the doctrine of uh, the millennium came under attack to the point that by about 200 AD, among the Christian churches that were then in existence, there was a diverse views about the millennium among the Christian churches. And so by, the, by that period of time, the true doctrine of a millennium had been replaced by the concept of a mystical or spiritual millennium. And this was pretty much the prevailing thought by about the fourth century AD. And some scholars will say, well, this particular change in the doctrine uh, represents the uh, progressiveness of Christianity. But what it really is truly an example of is how the true doctrine of the ancient church was essentially lost during the period of the great apostasy that began a couple hundred years before this doctrine finally solidified into this concept of a mystical or metaphorical millennium rather than a literal millennium. Now, <clears throat> by the time we get to the Reformation starting in the, the 1500s, uh, the Protestant movement largely brought back the doctrine of a literal millennium. And so today there are many Christian churches that believe in a literal millennium, but there are also many that don't. So there's just a split among Christian religions as to those that believe in a literal millennium and those that believe in a metaphorical, mystical, or spiritual millennium. Now within the LDS Church, of course, we have the 10th article of faith, which confirms the uh, millenarian doctrine that Christ will reign personally upon the earth among mortals and the earth will be renewed and receive its paradisiacal glory during this thousand year period of the earth's history. And what that means is essentially the earth and all things upon the earth will literally be transfigured uh, at the time of the second coming such that all creation uh, that existed uh, as of the fall of Adam will be reverted and transformed, transfigured back into that paradisiacal form that existed before the fall of Adam. So what we're going to see happening is that the world that we now live in, which is a terrestrial earth or a terrestrial world, is going to be transformed and taken back into a terrestrial condition 
which was a, like a paradise as it existed during the uh, Garden of Eden before the fall of Adam. And this transformation that occurs during the time of the second coming is what is frequently referred to as a new heaven and a new earth. Now the millennial conditions are going to begin at a set date and a predetermined time that will coincide with certain set dates connected to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so to be a little bit more specific, what we're going to get is a final cleansing of the telestial earth during the seventh vile plague of the third woe. And so I've talked about these vile plagues and the third woe in some of the prior podcasts. And so if you're not remembering uh, how all the dots tend to get connected, I'll, I just simply have to refer you back. We, we unfortunately don't have the time to revisit every single thing that I've already talked about. Um, but it's the, during this third woe that is the, the last of the vile plagues um, of the seven seals, Christ is going to purge evil and corruption from the earth at the time of the second coming, and then all things will rest for this thousand-year period, which is the uh, period of the earth's sabbatical. It is the seventh day uh, of thousand years in the history of the earth. This is the time when, when earthly kingdoms are going to be destroyed. Christ will rule as King of Kings, Lord of Lords for this period of a thousand years. And when you talk in terms of the King of Kings, this is designated him as a king over his earthly political kingdom. And when we identify him as a Lord of Lords, this designates him as the ecclesiastical head of a uh, spiritual kingdom or an ecclesiastical kingdom. So now, both of these kingdoms, his political kingdom and his ecclesiastical kingdom, are going to merge into a single millennial theocracy that we refer to as the Church of the Firstborn. Now, another aspect of Christ's rule during the period of the millennium is that he's going to reign from two world capitals during the period of the millennium. One of them is a political capital and one is a religious capital. The seat of Christ's political kingdom will exist at New Jerusalem or Zion in Missouri. This is the seat of the political kingdom, which is sometimes referred to as the law. So we talk in terms of the, the law going forth from Zion, that is Christ's political kingdom in New, in New Jerusalem in Missouri. The other capital is going to be in Old Jerusalem. This will be the religious capital, and we sometimes refer to this as the with the concept that the word will go forth from Jerusalem that is Old Jerusalem, and, and so that's his, uh, his capital city for the religious center of his, uh, of his millennial kingdom. Now, Christ rules over his political kingdom with a rod of iron. And what this means is that all people will be subject to the political or civil law of Zion. However, when it comes to the religious part or portion of Christ's kingdom upon the millennial earth, People can choose to reject the word of God. That is the religion that will go forth from old Jerusalem. So agency will continue to be fully intact during the period of the millennium and people can choose to believe whatever it is that they want to believe. Notwithstanding the fact that frankly, 
virtually all people at some point are going to accept the gospel uh, because of Christ's personal reign. It's a little bit hard not to do that um, where Satan is bound and where Christ is personally reigning upon the millennial earth. It's a little bit hard not to figure out uh, what your belief system should consist of. Nevertheless, agency will exist and uh, people will continue to be part of the gospel until uh, at least the approach of the little season when wickedness again is going to come about. And we'll get into that in more detail um, in some of the discussion that follows. This uh, millennial period, of course, is also going to be the time when the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord because there's no temptation from Satan. Uh, there's no temptation from the beast, the false prophet, all of whom have been cast into the uh, bottomless pit uh, or the lake of fire, respectively. Uh, whatever a person asks in righteousness, because they will only do so through the spirit that will prevail during the period, will be given them. Millennial inhabitants will also speak the pure language of Adam. So those are some of the things that are going to be going on during the period of the millennium by way of background and kind of introduction. The other doctrinal concept that we need to discuss in regard to the millennium is a matter of life and death. That is life and death as it exists during the millennium, which differs from life and death as it exists in this fallen world. And it, it brings to mind the, the movie Meet Joe Black when uh, Joe, who represents death, he's the embodiment of death, um, goes to a board meeting. And uh, during the board meeting, Drew is trying to explain the need to sell the company to uh, Bontague and says uh, that the, the need to, for this sale to Bontague is as certain as death and taxes. <laughs> so he's telling this, of course, to Joe Black, who is death, right? But he had never heard the saying death and taxes. And so he asked Drew, death and taxes? What an odd pairing. <laughs> And Drew says, what, you've never heard of the saying, there's nothing as certain as death and taxes? And Joe's response was, well, I have now. <laughs> so it's a funny little scene, but uh, the reality of it is when we get to the point of the millennium, death and taxes are not as certain as Drew would have you believe because death as it exists today uh, will not exist during the millennium. And I say that with a little asterisk after that because there, there are some exceptions. And so uh, we need to talk about that. But essentially at the second coming, all corruptible things are going to be consumed. And what we mean by this concept of corruptible things, we talk about not only things that are evil, but we talk about death. So all corruptible things are subject to death. And at the second coming, these things will be consumed so there will be no more death in the sense that we typically understand it. Now, something that we also need to understand is that by the time the millennium rolls around, I think there's going to be very few mortals that are still alive when the millennium begin because there are going to be so many people that are either going to be taken up to heaven and resurrected or they're going to die as celestial people and as sons of perdition. They all go away and you have this uh, fairly small cadre of 
terrestrial people who are the honorable people of the world and of course some celestial people who are only transfigured but will essentially remain as mortals upon the earth and uh, Bruce R. McConkie refers to them as millennial mortals who either get transfigured, translated, but the bottom line is they don't go through this process of death. They don't go through the twinkling of an eye in the sense that they have become immortals. If that occurs, then they don't have the ability to continue to procreate and have children during the millennium. But again, and this is just kind of me talking, I don't know this for certain, but based on everything I've kind of seen and read, I have a suspicion that uh, we're gonna get a pretty fresh start when we begin the millennium uh, I'm not saying there's only going to be eight people left, like at the time of uh, Noah, when uh, the uh, flood occurred. I'm sure there will be more than that, um, many more than that. But relatively speaking, there, there aren't going to be a lot of people left on the earth. And uh, what we will find is that these millennial mortals uh, are going to coexist on the earth with immortal people who will have some role during the millennium, particularly as it relates to temple work and certain other things. But the bottom line is these millennial mortals are not subject to physical sickness. Um, and we learn that they will live to the age of 100 years, which is the age of a tree. And then they will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And so what this means is essentially, you know, insurance companies who sell life insurance, they're going to have to find a whole new line of products because we're going to throw out the actuarial charts uh, about uh, supposed death dates because everybody's going to know uh, you're, you're done for after 100 years. And so you don't need life insurance because you're not going to die before that, but you're not going to live after that either. So at any rate, the, this is what happens is rather than the death, meaning the separation of the spirit and the body, uh, people are going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye so that their death and re resurrection is instantaneous. However, and again, this is where my little asterisk comes in, is because it depends on how people live as to whether this particular doctrine or principle applies. So what we have in most cases are people who are living celestial law. Many will grow up without sin unto salvation, which is essentially another way of saying that they're going to be inheritors of the celestial kingdom. And if they qualify for the celestial kingdom, then yes, there's no graves, no separation of spirit and body. Um, and uh, <laughs> if these were the only people that existed during the uh, millennium, all of you morticians out there are going to have to rethink your career choice as well because uh, we don't have the need for uh, graves and caskets and, and all of this sort of stuff. However, if people live only a terrestrial law during the millennium, then they will physically die, i.e. the spirit and the body are going to separate at the point in time when they reach 100 years of age. Now, again, at some point in time, we make the assumption that there's not going to be a lot of terrestrial people. There will be some at the beginning of the millennium, but as you move through it um, and uh, there exists no temptation and the Holy Ghost is powerful 
and we got this thousand year reign of peace and goodness and righteousness we're not going to have that many terrestrial people but then as you approach near the end of the millennium then once again what you're going to find is people are going to fall below the celestial standard of living and so yes we will again start to see terrestrial people and worse as we approach the end of the millennium so we can't just assume that everybody during the millennium is celestial everyone grows up without sin unto salvation slash celestial inheritance because <clears throat> these other classes and categories of people do and will exist and so if you don't reach to the level of a celestial authority or celestial worthiness then they will die their bodies will lie in the grave to await the time of the terrestrial resurrection and isaiah actually refers to this group of sinners as accursed so even though they live a terrestrial standard he considers them to be accursed now a little bit later when we talk about the uh, the short season or the little season that will follow the millennium the only people left on earth are going to be telestial people and sons of perdition and in that context the telestial people that are worse than terrestrial by the, the standards that apply are going to be called saints because relatively speaking Telestial people are saints in comparison to the sons of perdition. And in this context, where Isaiah refers to terrestrial people as a curse, that is again, relatively speaking, in connection and by comparison to those who live celestial law. And they're also a curse in the sense that they are damned in their eternal progress because they do not live a celestial standard that qualifies them to inherit a place in the celestial kingdom. Now just a couple of other things that I wanted to touch on in terms of the uh, conditions of the millennium before we move on to some other topics. We know also that during the millennium uh, enmity will cease to exist between animals amongst themselves and also between animals and humans. This is the the revelations that we describe coming from Isaiah where he talks about the the lion laying down with the lamb and the uh, uh, animals will start to eat straw um, that we won't have any more carnivores which is real sad to me because I like a good beefsteak I will never make it through the millennium <laughs> uh, if I have to become a vegetarian I mean just kill me now <laughs> <laughs> so at any rate, but these are some of the other things. There won't be any wars. Uh, the whole earth uh, will be as a holy mountain or a temple. Uh, people will build houses. Uh, they will prosper by the work of their own hands. The earth will produce food in abundance and water will be plentiful. So that's some of the other conditions that we can uh, look forward to. Uh, if we uh, happen to be among those that continue to uh, live during the millennium. Now let me touch briefly on the concept of temple work during the period of the millennium as well. What we're going to find as recorded in the 14th chapter of Revelation, there are going to be these 144,000 servants who stand with Christ on Mount Zion. And they represent what we call saviors on Mount Zion also. And they have charge to bring as many people as they can into the church of the firstborn which is the millennial church 
of Jesus Christ throughout the millennial period. I mentioned this above when I mentioned that we're going to have this merger between the political kingdom and the ecclesiastical kingdom, and that we call the millennial church of the firstborn. And so it is the charge of these saviors on Mount Zion, these 144,000 servants who, who qualify people to come into the church of the firstborn. The church of the firstborn consists of exaltation-worthy saints, those who will rule and reign with Jesus Christ on the earth for a period of a thousand years. We also refer to them as kings and queens, those who are sealed in the temple as husbands and wives in the patriarchal order. Separately, we refer to them as those who are described as having the seal of the living God, as described in Revelation chapter 7. They are those who have their calling and election made sure. All of these groups or classifications of people are those who are members of the church of the firstborn. And uh, essentially they will be those who will preside over temple work, both for the living and for the dead, during the period of the millennium. Now keep in mind that temples throughout the millennium as now are the only place where vicarious gospel ordinances for the dead can be performed. And they're also the only place where the exalting ordinances, that is the sealing ordinance for example, can be performed for both the living and the dead. And so since everyone before their resurrection has to comply with the law of earthly ordinances either to get into the celestial kingdom through the baptismal gateway covenants or to be exalted you have to pass through the gateway called the sealing ordinance that will get you into the highest degree of glory in the celestial kingdom. All of these ordinances that pertain to the celestial kingdom have to be performed for both the living and the dead. And so temple work during the millennium is going to be an immense undertaking. Keep in mind, just to give you some sense of uh, the magnitude of the work that has to be done, think of the countless people that have died throughout all the ages of the earth without having received their gospel ordinances. Um, consider also that the first time that vicarious ordinances were ever performed for the dead began after Christ was resurrected. And the ordinances for the dead in the meridian of time uh, were pretty short. Uh, in other words, after these ordinances began vicariously uh, with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it was only a short time before the great apostasy struck so that uh, temple ordinances for either the living or the dead uh, didn't get much accomplished. Um, today, temple ordinances are performed in very large number, but we also have genealogical limitations. Uh, we don't have the records to, be do, to do most of the work that needs to be done. And so most of the vicarious temple work that will be performed is going to have to occur during the millennium. So fortunately, uh, the church, President Nelson, are very busy building lots of temples uh, that will have to stand during the millennium so a lot of this work can be done. Now consider also that uh, during the period of the millennium when we have no more wars, we have no sickness, 
everybody lives to the age of 100 years, we're going to have a population explosion. So even though I said we may not start out with a lot of people early in the millennium, relatively speaking, um, we're going to have a large number of people and the number is going to grow very quickly. Some people have estimated that more people will live during this thousand year period of the millennium than have lived in all of the millennia in ancient history uh, combined. All right, so think about the number of people that have lived upon the earth for the last 6,000 years and say, we're gonna cram them all into this 1,000 year period of the millennium. So all of these people are gonna to have to have their living ordinances done and they will have to be performed in temples in addition to all of the uh, vicarious uh, people that I've worked for vicariously for people that I've talked about previously. So there are gonna be these hundreds and hundreds of operating temples and temple work is going to be the primary labor of righteous mortals on the earth throughout the period of the millennium. And during this period of time, of course, they will be assisted by resurrected people from beyond the veil who are gonna be able to provide them all of the genealogical information that we are now lacking. They will also help with a correction of a lot of the mistakes, yes, sometimes we make mistakes um, in doing our temple work now. <clears throat> Those things will be corrected and uh, taken care of. And so what is going to happen during this uh, period of the millennium is that uh, essentially we're going to seal in one great family chain all of the families of the earth so that every righteous person is not left without root or branch meaning that uh, they will be tied to their ancestral roots and they will also be tied to the branches of their posterity all the way back to Adam so that uh, we're all exalted together because exaltation is a family affair. That highest degree of glory in the celestial kingdom, which we call exaltation, is family exaltation where we're all sealed together as joint heirs um, with Jesus Christ. So, you know, a lot of people uh, are attracted to uh, the LDS Church because of its teachings on family and, and strong families. And so that's appealing to many people in society, but uh, frankly, they don't know the half of it because if they don't understand the concept of why we think families are so important and it has to do with our existing as families in the hereafter, that's really what we're striving for. And so this is what we need to consider as we're talking now about the, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the temple work that will be done during the course of the millennium. Okay, so that's kind of some uh, overview material and information about the doctrine of the millennium. I wanna now move on to talking about John's vision of the first resurrection, which he describes in Revelation 20, verses four through six. And so this is the three verses where John describes what the thousand year millennium consists of, specifically in relationship to the first resurrection. Now these verses are kind of unique because they form a Hebrew chiasmus, which is a form of Hebrew poetry that uh, I'm gonna describe as we put up on the uh, screen the three verses uh, where you'll see that verses four through six form an ABC then CBA relationship in terms of the statements that we find 
in these particular verses. Now, a chiasmus, by definition, uh, has the beginning of the chiasmus that corresponds to the end of the chiasmus, and then every sentence within the chiasmus tends to relate in a similar kind of relationship. So A, B, C, you get to the center of the chiasmus, then C, B, A, they all have this uh, thought that is in common. And so if you're looking at this, I've broken these down. It's better to just kind of walk through them than me trying to explain it. Uh, but essentially, what we have in the A, B, C, C, B, A format, and, and keep in mind these chiasmuses can uh, be very, very long. So it's not like you have A, B, C, C, B, A. It could be A through H, H back to A. Uh, in the Book of Mormon, there's some very, very long chiasmuses that uh, take many, many verses, some of them entire chapters. Um, so this is kind of a simple one, but the idea is the central focus of the thought that John is trying to convey is at the center of the chiasma. So everything A, B leading up to C is to lead you to the central focus of the chiasmus or the central doctrine that John is trying to teach. And so here we have A that starts out in verse 4 of Revelation 20. And I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So that's the, the introductory thought in line A. Now if you skip down to the bottom, you'll see a similar thought at the end of verse 6 where it says, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So the common thought in the two A segments of the chiasmus is this idea of reigning with Christ a thousand years. Then if you go up to line B, it talks about the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. That corresponds with this concept of the second death in the second B line. And then at the center of the chiasmus, line C and C, it's the, the focus is again the first resurrection. So it says, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. Now that we have some idea about the structure of the uh, chiasmus and the manner in which John presents these concepts of the first resurrection in Revelation 24 through 6, we need to talk a little bit about more specifically what he means what, when he's talking about the first resurrection because he essentially is referring to what we would call the morning of the first resurrection. People who qualify for exaltation are those which come forth in the morning of the first resurrection. And they continually will be resurrected throughout the thousand year period of the millennium. That's what we learn in verses 4 through 6. But we also learn by implication that this is the morning of the first resurrection for the full thousand year period because it says specifically that these people will rule and reign with Jesus Christ on earth. And so the only people who are going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ during the millennium are those who are exaltation worthy, those who qualify to sit on thrones, to have crowns upon their head, and to rule with him as joint heirs with him in his kingdom. And so when John is talking about the first resurrection and those that reign with him, 
Keep in mind, we're talking about the morning of the first resurrection. So at this point, we need to break things down a little bit and talk a little bit more about what the first resurrection means because there are actually four different groups that will come forth in four separate and consecutive stages of the first resurrection. And I think generally speaking, members of the church have a good understanding and appreciation for the fact that the resurrection in general proceeds sequentially or consecutively in descending order or priority based on obedience. So we start out with the celestial and then we have the terrestrial, we go to the telestial, and finally we end up with sons of perdition who re are resurrected to a kingdom without any glory. So that's the descending order in which things occur at the time of the resurrection. But it's important to understand that within the first resurrection itself, there are four separate groups that will come forth. And so I want to talk about those now at this point. So we have essentially within the first resurrection, we have time periods designated as the morning, the afternoon, and the evening of the first resurrection. There happen to be two different groups that are resurrected during the morning of the first resurrection. The first group consists of exaltation-worthy saints who came forth at the time that Christ was resurrected in the meridian of time. We refer to these as the first fruits. This was one large group of people that will reign with Christ during the millennium, but the time period in which their resurrection occurred was actually in the time of Jesus Christ. And keep in mind that anyone coming forth in the morning of the first resurrection always have the promise that they will come forth to rule and reign with Christ during the millennium. So it doesn't matter if you were resurrected before or at the time of Christ's resurrection, you still qualify as an exaltation-worthy person to rule with him during the millennium. And so this is a recurring theme in John's letters to the seven churches, for example. Hey, you live, you overcome evil, uh, you overcome Satan, then you're going to be qualified to uh, receive an exaltation-worthy celestial glory in the morning of the first resurrection. So that first group are those who are resurrected with Jesus Christ at the time of his resurrection. Now, at the time we hit the second coming, the morning of the first resurrection is going to resume. It never technically ends. It just kind of goes into this period of abeyance. It is not continuous. The resurrection of exaltation-worthy people is not continuous from the time of Jesus Christ until the second coming. We had a large group of people resurrected with him that lived before he died. Then no one gets resurrected with only some exceptions. For example, Peter and James um, and, and uh, Moroni are noteworthy examples because they had special missions to perform. But generally speaking, people do not continually resurrect to exaltation and the status of exaltation from the time of Christ until the time of the second coming. And so what we get at the time of the second coming is a resumption of the morning of the first resurrection in which all exaltation-worthy saints who have died since the time of Christ will then be resurrected. And again, this is going to be one large group of people, and this occurs at the end of the second woe. We're now talking about uh, chapter 11 
and the resurrection of the two witnesses that I've talked about before. I'm talking about at the end of chapter 14 of Revelation, where we had the harvest of uh, exaltation-worthy wheat, if you will, uh, who are exalted just before the start of the third woe. That's when this large group of people is going to be uh, resurrected. And so at that point in time, after that large group of people is resurrected, then the morning of the first resurrection is going to then remain open and it will be continuous to the end of the millennium. So if you have exalted millennial mortals living during the millennium, they will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. In other words, their death and resurrection will be instantaneous and they receive a, an exaltation status at the time that they change in the twinkling of an eye. And so um, essentially, if you stop and think about it, uh, this morning of the first resurrection is going to last for a long time. In fact, it's going to last almost 3,000 years from the time when Christ was initially resurrected in the meridian of time, all for the 2,000 years that we've passed now, for another 1,000 years of the millennium. So 3,000 years is when the morning of the first resurrection is going to continue. And uh, it will include the lost 10 tribes who received their temple ordinances sometime after the second coming. And essentially, all of the temple work that we're doing as people receive their ordinances, if they're otherwise celestial worthy, they will then be qualified to receive their celestial glory and as exalted people. And uh, we have to comply with the law of earthly ordinances and make sure that those get performed before these people are resurrected. So essentially that's the two phases of the morning of the first resurrection, that group that rises with Christ and then a big group that rises at the time of the second coming and then continuously through the end of the millennium until every single exaltation worthy person who qualifies for that highest degree of glory in the celestial kingdom has been resurrected by the end of the millennium. Now, another aspect of the, uh, the resurrection, the celestial resurrection, is going to be the afternoon of the first resurrection. The afternoon of the first resurrection is a concept that is probably not real familiar to a lot of people uh, because it consists of celestial worthy saints who are entitled to celestial kingdom but not exaltation. Okay, so we have to distinguish between those who are exaltation worthy who come forth in the morning and those who are celestial worthy but not exaltation worthy but do qualify for the celestial kingdom. We have to have a time for them to come forth and the time in which they will come forth is the afternoon of the first resurrection that will be shortly after the start of the millennium. So it will be after the second coming and after the start of the millennium, you will have these celestial worthy people who will rise in the resurrection. These are the unexalted ministering servants known as the general assembly. They do not reign with Christ during the millennium because even though they've been resurrected, they do not qualify for exaltation. They do not qualify for thrones, principalities, uh, dominions, uh, high and low, left and right, okay? Uh, but they still qualify to, to have a resurrection early in the millennium. And so I refer to that as the afternoon. And, and I'm telling you right now, 
this is a concept that is not well understood within the church generally. Uh, it's a concept that I will discuss in more detail when I get to my more detailed discussion of the resurrection at a future time. And I'll talk about that at the end of this, uh, this particular podcast. But just keep in mind, I'm giving you a concept, a doctrinal, and you're going to kind of have to take it on faith that this is the way it is and must be necessarily, but I'm going to fill in the blanks later on. So the, the next or fourth group of people that to come forth during the first resurrection are those that come forth in the evening. These are the people that are referred to by John in Revelation 25 as the rest of the dead who come not forth until the end of the first resurrection. And so that's one of the things that he talks about uh, in Revelation 25 when he said, but the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. In that statement in Revelation 25, he is referring to those who come forth in the terrestrial resurrection. And there's some confusion about that. Uh, people who don't understand what that means, they think, oh, the people who come forth at the end of the millennium are telestial people. Um, and, and that's not right. Um, and I'll explain why that is in just a moment. But just understand the concept to begin with that the rest of the dead uh, are those terrestrial worthy people who enter the terrestrial kingdom when they get resurrected. This is also a resurrection that occurs in one large group. So all the terrestrial people in one big group at the end of the millennium are going to be resurrected and they will be resurrected after all celestial people have been resurrected, including those that come forth in the morning of the first resurrection and those that come forth in the afternoon of the first resurrection. The law of obedience dictates this. So this idea that we have to wait for the terrestrial people to come forth is not dictated just because it seems like a good idea and it kind of has uh, some sense of order to it. The law of, of uh, obedience dictates it because you can't have a, a terrestrial person being resurrected ahead of a celestial because uh, that would not be just. It would not be consistent or in harmony with the, the law of obedience. All right. And so there are those who say that the terrestrial resurrection begins at the start of the millennium. And as I pointed out, that's not consistent with what John says. And let me just put that particular verse up on the screen again in Revelation 20, colon 5, where it says, But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection, close quote. Now, what's important about this verse is it says, This is the first resurrection. And again, he's here referring to the rest of the dead who live not again until the thousand years were finished. If that's part of the first resurrection, it cannot be the telestial resurrection because the telestial resurrection is part of the second resurrection that comes after we have the terrestrial people. So by definition, and what John is telling us here is the rest of the dead that come forth at the end of the thousand years, they're still part of the first resurrection, which means that it can only be the terrestrial people that fall into that categories. And so um, if, if it were to be otherwise, let me just kind of give you a couple concepts of why it would be inconsistent to think that terrestrial people would come forth 
at the start of the millennium. If that was the, the manner in which this would proceed, then it, that contradicts this well-established doctrine that the resurrection occurs in descending order and is not concurrent because you can't end the celestial resurrection before the end of the millennium. You're going to continue to have children born during the millennium. You're going to have those who will qualify themselves, many in fact, who will qualify themselves for exaltation in the celestial kingdom or at a minimum qualify themselves for celestial glory. And if the celestial resurrection has already ended sometime near the start of the millennium because, oh, we're starting the terrestrial resurrection near the beginning of the millennium, then guess what? Those children that are born after the terrestrial resurrection begins, i.e. the celestial has already ended, are delegated or relegated to nothing better than a terrestrial resurrection because they were born too late. If they were born after the terrestrial resurrection begins and the celestial has ended, they're automatically disqualified merely by the timing of their birth. And God is no such respecter of persons. That's why the celestial resurrection has to continue through the end of the millennium as long as children are being born and needing to have the opportunity to qualify themselves for a celestial resurrection, it has to remain open. And once it closes, guess what? It also necessarily means, guess what? There's no more people that are being born who would qualify themselves. And we're getting into this concept a little bit more, but you know, this is kind of scenes to coming attractions, spoiler alert. Uh, by the time we get to the end of the millennium, there are not going to be any more children who are born. The earth will have fulfilled the measure of its creation. Everybody who was uh, established and dedicated to come down to this earth and appointed for a time and dwelling upon this earth will have come to this earth. And so we will have reached the end of that stage of this earth's creation. Now, another thing that's important to understand is not just the, the timing principles, the order of resurrection is governed by the law of obedience. You remember in the 130th section, verses 18 and 19, it tells us whatever principle of intelligence we attain unto in this life, it will rise with us in the resurrection. And if a person has gains more knowledge and intelligence through his diligence and obedience than another, he has so much the advantage in the world to come. So if you take that principle and you say, you know what, I'm just going to have terrestrial people that will be able to be resurrected either concurrently with celestial people or even ahead of celestial people, you've thrown that concept and that principle on its, on its ear because it means essentially, oh, I thought I was supposed to have an advantage because of my diligence and obedience in the world to come, but it turns out that's not really the case because even though I qualified myself for a celestial glory through my diligence and obedience, the terrestrial guys are ahead of me anyway, okay? And so you can't have that. The law of obedience dictates that the terrestrial does not have the advantage of a resurrection or anything else ahead of those who qualify themselves for celestial glory. 
it's the old concept of the law of the harvest. You have to reap whatever you sow. And if you only uh, sow seeds of terrestrial glory, guess what? You're not going to be able to leapfrog yourself ahead of those who have sown celestial glory as part of their life. Uh, this is otherwise known as the law of cause and effect. That's kind of the scientific version of what we call in the gospel the law of the harvest. So in the uh, scientific version of cause and effect, we know that whenever you have two causes that are identical, you will always have the exact same effect. And I, <laughs> I say this, uh, except for if you're going through your college uh, chemistry courses and you're in a lab performing experiments that you've been shown how to do by your college professor, you get all kinds of results. <laughs> but fear not, it's not because the law of cause and effect has been thrown out the window. It's always invariably because these fresh and freshman chemistry students are screwing up the experiments and so you don't get the same outcome even though you're expecting it thinking I did everything exactly the same and it turns out you didn't. So at any rate the law of cause and effect is an immutable scientific doctrine. Uh, you always get the same effect from identical causes just as the law of harvest. You reap what you sow. You don't get to leapfrog ahead if you don't qualify for celestial glory. You're going to be stuck waiting to the end of the millennium for your terrestrial resurrection. All right. So moving on just a little bit to this concept of what these resurrected bodies consist of, you need to understand that, and, and this is true uh, regardless of the stage of resurrection in which a person comes forth, resurrected bodies in every stage will be perfect in their form. Any physical deformities, degradations at death will be eliminated. So if you had someone who had a congenital work defect uh, in their physical body, that's going to be cured during the resurrection. If you have injuries to bodies, people who lose, lose a limb or whatever else might be the cause, just this mutilation of body, everything comes back to its perfect form and not one hair of the head shall be lost. All of those things are taken care of in the resurrection. Similarly, children that die before their bodies mature will then resurrect with the same size body. So we're going to have a bunch of resurrected infants, young children, and uh, what happens is during the resurrection, at the time that they're resurrected in their immature physical form, those bodies will grow as resurrected bodies to the stature and size of a mature spirit. And there will be those who are their natural or perhaps adoptive parents who are going to rear these resurrected children to maturity. Now these resurrected children will have their calling and election made sure they're not going to be subject to temptation uh, as their glorified bodies grow and mature physically. So that's something a little bit just in terms of the nature of physical bodies uh, that have been resurrected. Now, let me also share with you kind of an overview of the first resurrection and the last resurrection. So everything that I've kind of talked about up to this point and these four stages of resurrection, those are all four stages that exist within the first resurrection. But there are two major divisions 
within the resurrection of the human family. We refer, refer to the first resurrection as first resurrection, uh, but it's also called the resurrection of the just. It is the resurrection in which both celestial and terrestrial worthy people come forth. It is the resurrection that began with Christ in the millennium of time, in the meridian of time, and it will not be complete until the end of the millennium, some 3,000 years later. This entire period of time is devoted to the first resurrection, and the vast majority of it, except right at the end of the millennium, all of it is devoted to the celestial resurrection. That includes both the morning of the first resurrection, as I've discussed it, and the afternoon of the first resurrection, as I've discussed it. So just keep in mind, these two get grouped together, but the reality of it is most of the time is de devoted to celestial resurrection with the telestial, terrestrial coming at the very end in what we call the evening of the first resurrection. Now, some people call it the afternoon of the first resurrection because they don't distinguish between the, the resurrection of exaltation worthy people in the morning from people who are celestial worthy but not exaltation worthy who come forth in the afternoon. So when we finally get to the end of the millennium, when we're completed with the first resurrection, there will be no celestial people living upon the earth as mortals or millennial mortals, as Bruce R. McConkie refers to them. And there will be no terrestrial mortals living on the earth because all will have been resurrected. And this is the point in time when we're ready to kind of move into what is known as the little season that John describes in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. And what you need to understand is that as we go into the little season of wickedness, the only people that are going to be left upon the earth going into that phase of the earth's existence are going to be telestial people or telestial worthy people and sons of perdition. They're the ones that are going to participate in this battle that will occur during the, uh, the little season. This also then leads into the second great phase of the resurrection of the human family, and that's called the last resurrection. Sometimes it's referred to as the second resurrection to coincide with the first resurrection, but unlike the first resurrection that is specifically denominated as such in the scriptures, the, the word second resurrection does not appear in scripture, but it's a well-accepted description to describe the resurrection of the unjust. So last resurrection, second resurrection, resurrection of the unjust, they're all the same thing, describe exactly the same thing, which is essentially the resurrection of celestial worthy, worthy people and sons of perdition. The celestial people will rise in the morning of the second resurrection. Sons of perdition rise last in the afternoon of the second resurrection. And so when we talk about how these resurrections are going to occur during this last resurrection, what you have to understand is that the celestial worthy people, and we're talking about all ages of time, not just those who are living at the end of the millennium, but the celestial people of all ages are going to be resurrected in a single group 
at the end of the little season. So that's the morning or first part of the resurrection of the unjust. Then we'll have the final group is going to be the sons of perdition that will rise as one single group at the end of the earth. And so we call that the afternoon of the resurrection of the unjust or the evening of the resurrection of the unjust. And this again includes all sons of perdition uh, who came to this earth committed the unpardonable sin and therefore qualified themselves to be sons of perdition they all get resurrected in a single large group that then gets judged by jesus christ in revelation chapter 20 verses 12 through 14 which i will cover momentarily but before we get there let's talk a little bit about what the the little season is that occurs after the resurrection of the just is complete in other words after we resurrect all celestial worthy people, all terrestrial worthy people, we get rid of them. And you can see the pattern here already beginning. You can see the pattern that at the time of the second coming, we got rid of all of the telestial people. We got rid of all of the mortal sons of perdition. And the only people left during the millennium were those who lived either a terrestrial condition or a celestial condition. Now, as we move into the little season of wickedness that comes at the end of the millennium now we're going to take up all of the celestial people in the resurrection we're going to take up all the terrestrial people in the resurrection leaving only the telestial people and sons of british and it's exactly opposite right it's they're antithetical they're uh, symmetrical but mere opposites of the other Okay, and so one of the one of the things to take into consideration that has a lot of uh, questions asked about it is how long does the little season last? And there's no specific duration ever given in the uh, scriptures, but some people say that the little season could last as much as another thousand years, so that the Earth's temporal existence was a thousand was eight thousand years in all. Now the people who kind of take this position are pretty notable people within the church. They include people like Joseph Fielding Smith and Bruce R. McConkie. And so uh, I'm hesitant to disagree with <laughs> these scriptorias and these powerhouses. I have the greatest of respect for them, but I don't agree with them on this particular concept uh, of saying that the little season would last for another thousand years. And, and let me explain, first of all, why, what rationale they use to get themselves there. So the reason why they tend to think, and then they're expressing their opinion, they're not expressing it as a matter of doctrine, and so I, I get that. Uh, and so we, we have this uh, difference of opinion here. But essentially, the logic behind their thinking is that Jesus Christ was born in the meridian of time, which means the midpoint of time. And we know that he was born 4,000 years after the fall of Adam. And so if he's uh, being born at the midpoint, then you need another 4,000 years after his uh, mortal ministry in the time of his birth in order for that truly to be a midpoint. And so I, I get that and I appreciate that. But uh, by the same token, you could also say, well, we what if we recognize that our, there are these seven kingdoms um, and then there is an eighth kingdom after the seventh kingdom. This is what's described in Revelation chapter 17, 
verses 10 and 11, where it talks about these seven kingdoms and then an eighth kingdom that comes for the little season. Well, it's not saying that that has to be a thousand years. It's just saying we had four periods and kingdoms that existed before the coming of Christ, and we have four after. It's not a numerical meridian of time in terms of years, but in the nature of kingdoms and things of this nature. Now, the other thing that I would say in regard to the uh, the concept that the, the little season would be another thousand years is it's not consistent with the revelations that we have in Doctrine and Covenants section 77, verses 6 through 7, where Joseph Smith asked, what the seven seals were, and in response to that question, the Lord revealed to him that the seven seals represent seven periods of 1,000 years each in the earth's temporal history. So we have a scriptural declaration that the temporal history of the earth lasts 7,000 years, and the period of the millennium is still part of the earth's temporal history, and so too is the little season. The, the earth doesn't change its status. It doesn't go from being a terrestrial earth during the millennium and then it falls again back to a telestial world. We know that in the course of the earth's history it goes from the uh, terrestrial Garden of Eden to the telestial world, then at the second coming back to terrestrial and by the end of the earth, it goes on to become a celestial world. But we don't go backwards. And so uh, temporal history or time does not stop with the little season. And therefore, you can't assume that the little season is going to add on another thousand years of temporal history because it's inconsistent with what is stated in Doctrine and Covenants section 77, verses 6 through 7. You get some other people because they're trying to analyze this and say that there's this, uh, that Jesus Christ's birth fits squarely with the meridian of time in a temporal sense, they'll say, well, the little season is going to be a relatively brief period, but followed by a long period of time until the celestial or final judgment. And that too is highly unlikely because when you get the final celestialization of the earth at the end of the little season, you're suggesting that it's just going to kind of sit around and, and, and not do anything for a while. We'll just let it sit there so we can qualify for this concept that Christ in a temporal sense came in the meridian of time. And there's no apparent reason to delay the resurrection of the earth after it dies at the end of the little season. And it, it just kind of reminds me a little bit of <clears throat> one of the Bourne movies. I think it was the Bourne Ultimatum or something. I think it was the third in the series. And, you know, who hasn't seen these? But it's the one where uh, they're trying to, of course, they're always trying to track down Jason Bourne. Uh, they think he's a bad guy. And uh, Nicky Parsons, who was kind of supposedly taking care of him in the earlier versions of the movies, they're over in Germany. And uh, Jason Bourne, suddenly his passport pop pops up on the grid. And they're all trying to figure out, why did he just show up? What's going on with Jason Bourne? And uh, somebody makes the comment, well, maybe it's just random. Maybe it's just kind of coincidental. And Nicky Parsons, who knew Jason and knew the whole uh, Treadstone uh, thing and how it works, says, they don't do random. 
and so everybody's looking at him at her and uh, and they don't do random right nothing they do is an uncalculated move everything has a reason everything has a purpose uh, and it is dictated by whatever their strategy is at the particular time well when I think about this concept that uh, Jason Bourne uh, and the other members of Treadstone, Treadstone don't do random, well, neither does the Lord. The Lord doesn't do random. And when the purpose of the earth was fulfilled at the end of the little season, it was dictated according to law, the law of obedience, the order that exists in heaven, it just doesn't sit there and kind of hang out for no particular reason. And so once the earth fulfilled the measure of its creation at the end of the little season, uh, we're gonna talk a little bit more about that, but once it accomplishes that, we're ready to move on. We don't just kind of hang around and do random, okay? And so that's why I tend to think that the little season uh, is not a lengthy period that I'm going to explain, and nor does it just kind of linger until we finally hit this 8,000-year uh, mark so that we can say that Christ was born temporally in the meridian of time. My conclusion is that the little season will last substantially less than 100 years, and there's a reason for that. I have a method to my madness, all right? Uh, and the reason why I think it will have to last less than 100 years is keep in mind that millennial mortals have a maximum lifespan of 100 years. We're told that in Isaiah. There's no one I think that would disagree that that's the lifespan of millennial mortals. And when we move from the end of the millennium into the little season, it, it isn't this huge earth-shattering change in the conditions of the earth. We don't, as I mentioned, we don't go back to a terrestrial condition. <clears throat> We're not advancing to celestial. You just move into another stage. And so there's no reason to think that the conditions of mortality changed as we moved from the millennium into the little season. It's just different periods of time. Uh, and it kind of comes back to this concept I told you a little bit ago. Life insurance companies they're always going to know when people die. We throw the actuarial charts out the window. And uh, it's important to note, as I mentioned before, as we come to the end of the millennium, children will no longer be born as we move into the little season. And that's, once again, that's because when the celestial resurrection ends, you have to have the end of childbirth or you're having children that are being born after the celestial resurrection ends and they're being predetermined or dictated to a condition of salvation below celestial only because they were born too late to make it into the celestial resurrection. So those things all go kind of hand in hand that uh, we're going to get the end of childbirth as we reach the end of the millennium and if their lifespans are only 100 years. Well, guess what? From that, we have to automatically deduce that the little season can last no more than 100 years because come 100 years after that last child is born, everybody's going to die of natural causes. Now, that's not going to happen because there's just going to be this ugly war called Gog and Magog or the Battle of the Great God. Uh, those are synonymous terms and uh, they're going to be killing each other. So it's not like there's going to be a lot of just natural deaths occurring during the little season because people are going to be killing each other. All right. But the bottom line is 
that that gives us the outside limit as to how long the little season can last because childbirth will not be continuing. We're going to have reached the fixed number of children appointed to live on this earth by the time the end of the millennium comes. And so when the last child is born on this earth, it has to be sometime well before the celestial resurrection is complete. And I say well before the end of the celestial resurrection because you have to give these last children of the millennium time to be born, to grow up, to mature, to have time to accept the gospel. They have to become accountable to be baptized at the age of eight. Their physical bodies have to mature to the stature of their spirit. They have to have time to be sealed in the temple to qualify for exaltation. And all of these things have to happen before the celestial resurrection is complete. So if we assume that we need 30 years or so for people to, you know, grow up, find a partner, get sealed in the temple, etc., etc., then now we're down to the little season lasting no more than 70 years. And I'm speaking somewhat hypothetically now because, again, I think the concept is simply that the uh, little season can't be more than 100 years uh, and with considerations that we need time to do everything that uh, I've already talked about. And so as we go into the uh, little season, the people that we have left are going to be those who are celestial people and those who are uh, sons of perdition. And what happens as uh, we begin to move toward this era of wickedness, we learn in Revelation 27 that Satan's going to be loosed. So this is what that verse says specifically. Quote, and when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, close quote. Now, you'll remember at the beginning of this podcast, I mentioned to you that Satan was bound in the bottomless pit or in the depths of hell for 1,000 years in the first three verses of Revelation chapter 20. And so now we've come forward in time, continuing with John's chronological account, uh, and Satan is now going to be loose with all his unembodied spirits. In other words, his unembodied spirit followers from the time of the premortal existence when they rebelled in the Grand Council, they were cast down onto this earth at the creation as unembodied spirits. They were thrown into the bottomless pit at the second coming. Those are the guys that now get loosed and come back on earth. Now, the thing that you need to understand is the disembodied spirits, those who lived upon the earth and became sons of perdition because they committed the unpardonable sin while living upon the earth, they don't get loosed at the end of the millennium. It's only unembodied spirits that get loosed. And how is it that we know that? We know that because... The disembodied spirits, those who followed Cain or Judas Iscariot as the beast or the, the false prophet, those we learn were cast alive into the lake of fire, which is a permanent condition during the third woe. And that's in Revelation 19.20. And I'm going to reinforce that a little bit in a, in a minute when we talk about chap, verse 10 of chapter 20, how this distinction is made. So the bottom line is, when Satan is loose, it's only him and his unembodied spirit followers and not disembodied spirits that participate in the battle of Gog and Magog during 
the little season. Okay, so now what's happening here as we're talking now here about Revelation chapter 20 verse 7 is the type or foreshadow for this event can be seen in the Nephite history. And so we know that uh, after Jesus Christ appeared to the Nephites, they had about a 200 year period of what we sometimes refer to as the uh, mini millennium. But after about 200 years, they started to slowly go back to their old ways. They started to rebel until they got to the point where they were so wicked that uh, they were destroyed. And so that's the kind of foreshadow that we're talking about. So if you want to know how we went from this millennial condition of peace and righteousness and goodness and Satan is bound and now he's not bound and, and, and entering into the uh, little season, just go back and read the chapters that talk about the uh, Nephite apostasy and you're going to have a pretty good picture. And so what we have going on when Satan gets loosed here in verse 7 is Michael is going to use his keys to loose Satan from the bottomless pit in the same way that he used keys to bind Satan at the beginning of the millennium. And when Satan gets uh, loosed in verse 7, he's going to basically start to muster his armies for the battle of Gog and Magog, where he and his unembodied spirits will fight against Michael and the heavenly hosts. And the battle is going to be for the terrestrial worthy people and seeing how many of them we can save. And so the, the dividing line is you've got all of these wicked people at the end of the millennium. And by the, and by the end of the little season, a certain number of them are going to repent and qualify themselves for the celestial kingdom. Others are going to harden in sin and in rebellion, and they're going to qualify themselves as sons of perdition. But it comes down to those two groups. And these spirits that are uh, having influence on the earth, Satan on the one hand, Michael and his heavenly hosts on the other hand, they're trying to influence the outcome of this physical battle between celestial people and sons of perdition, trying to persuade them to do at least good enough that they can qualify for themselves for the celestial kingdom. Now keep in mind, celestial people, as defined in the 76th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, they're, they're liars, they're sorcerers, they're, they're adulterers, they're whoremongers. These are wicked people, all right? But relatively speaking, they're saints because the mortal sons of perdition are even worse. They're vessels of wrath. And uh, they openly rebel and apostatize from Christ's millennial church, the church of the firstborn. And so because of these conditions, you have to stop and think, if those are the only people on earth, it's going to be a really bad place. These, they're so evil that Satan will have his greatest power ever on earth just because of the nature of the people on earth who are willing to listen to him and to be influenced by him. But this is the nature of Satan's eighth worldly kingdom of seven as described in Revelation chapter 17 verses 10 and 11.
So what we find as we're here in the, uh, the little season, we have spiritual conditions that are exactly opposite from those that we find during the millennium. So during the millennium, we had Satan bound and we had only celestial and terrestrial people living on the earth. Children grow up without sin unto salvation and it's a, it's a pretty cool place to live. We get to the little season, however, now Satan is loosed, and the only people on earth are the telestial people, sons of perdition, and it's a, just a really a wicked, wicked place. Let me again put up uh, Revelation 20, verse 7, where it says, quote, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. And where it says Satan shall be loosed, what it really means is Satan must be loosed to fulfill the purposes of God. And uh, during this time, Satan is going to have great power because God allows it and because wicked people choose to allow it in their lives. But the reason for the little season is because this is a time of final testing when mortals that are then on the earth are going to qualify to inherit the celestial kingdom. And if they don't qualify for that, they're going to be relegated to outer darkness as sons of perdition. And so a lot of times when we think about the work and glory of God to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man, we, we have in our minds this concept of getting people into the celestial kingdom. And that's a little bit short-sighted. That's certainly God's purpose. But his purpose doesn't end with saving his children in the celestial kingdom. It doesn't end with saving his children in the terrestrial kingdom. It really only ends with his purpose to also save as many of his children in the celestial kingdom if they cannot otherwise qualify themselves for terrestrial glory or for celestial glory. And so that's what's happening here in the little season is he's trying to give his remaining children, and some of them are going to be among the worst of the worst, but trying to save as many of them as he can um, by having them repent because they suffer the wrath of God on earth as described in Doctrine and Covenants section 76, 104. That's the time period in which this verse describes them suffering on earth so that they can qualify for celestial glory. And those that refuse to repent and willfully rebel uh, to the end of the little season, they are those who will then qualify themselves to go into outer darkness as sons of perdition. Okay, so now let's take a look at Revelation verse 20, chapter 20, verse 8. It says, quote, And shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And so once again, what we're talking about here is Satan and his unembodied spirits who are loosed after a thousand years going out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, meaning whatever people are still on earth, and that consists of celestial people and various sons of perdition. The idea of the, the four corners uh, or quarters of the earth are those who are all people in all corners of the earth. And they're trying to basically pull from one side to the other side 
and as I mentioned before, the uh, the wickedness that is going to be exhibited as we go into the little season is analogous to the rebellious Nephites after the 200-year period of their mini-millennium. And so uh, talking about uh, this concept of Gog and Magog and who that is or what that is, these are basically symbolic names that are given to the warring people and nations during the little season. They symbolize the rebellious mortal sons of perdition. So if we're talking about Gog and Magog or the armies of Gog and Magog, those are the mortal sons of perdition being influenced by Satan and his unembodied spirit sons of perdition. The same names appear in rabbinical writings and other ancient literature, and essentially the, the names are an allusion to an unknown wicked leader of the nations in antiquity. We find the same names appearing in the book of Ezekiel. So essentially, John is using the names of Gog and Magog as an allusion to the past, and they represent types of wicked people uh, in the little season. And we just don't have enough of the history of Gog and Magog in the Old Testament to give us more definition of uh, who they are, but we can feel reasonably confident that they are the foreshadow for the wicked people during the uh, little season. Now, one other thing I just want to make note of is that we talk about the number of mortal participants uh, in this battle of Gog and Magog, and the number is going to be as great as the proverbial sand of the sea. And so what you have to understand is that uh, Satan and his unembodied spirits are going to use deception to incite mortal armies to wage this violent war, and every man's sword is going to be against his uh, brother. And this is all kind of foreshadowed by the genocidal battles of the Jaredites and the Nephites. But when we talk about this number, the sand of the sea, um, you know, in when we have the number of Nephites, remember that when they were gathered to fight that final battle at Cumorah in 385 AD, you remember how the Book of Mormon kind of lists them, and, and this general with his 10,000 was dead, and this general with his 10,000 was dead. And so you get these hundreds of thousands of people that die during these final battles at Cumorah, they pale in comparison to the number of celestial worthy people and sons of perdition that are going to die here at the end of the earth during the little season because the number of them are so numerous that they're like the sand of the sea. And so that gives you some sense of the total number of people that will live during the millennium itself. I already mentioned that it's it's a really large number, but this again kind of gives you some idea as to just how large it's going to be. So let's now go to uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 9, which states as follows, quote, And they went up on the breadth of the earth, and compassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven, and devoured them. Close quote. Now, just to give you a little bit more details of what's going on here, some of which comes from the uh, uh, book of Ezekiel in uh, chapter 38, uh, we're talking here about the Battle of Gog and Magog that comes after the millennium. It's also known as the Battle of the Great God, and that's because God is completely in control of the outcome. It is both a physical battle between mortal combatants and a spiritual battle 
between Satan and his unbodied host and Michael and his heavenly host. Um, and so these two battles are going to extend over the entire breadth of the earth. And it's going to be a two-sided conflict in which there will be no middle ground. And by the end of the battle, what we're going to find is we're going to have this camp of the saints. And that's referred to again specifically in verse 9. Uh, the word saints is actually used and don't let, be confused by that and say, oh, this must be talking about uh, good churchgoers, <laughs> the people who we look go, going to the celestial kingdom or the, even the terrestrial kingdom. No, no, no. The saints in this context are these celestial liars, sorcerers, adulterers, whoremongers, murderers. And you ask yourself the question, well, why do we possibly call them saints? And the reason is, is because relatively speaking, when compared to the sons of perdition, they are saints, all right? And as they suffer God's wrath on earth, they will begin to recognize and confess Jesus as the Christ, will submit to God's will and thus qualify themselves for celestial glory in which they will they will receive a kingdom of glory and so they are saints in the sense that ultimately through their resurrection they will achieve glory in the celestial kingdom they uh, but again they're not saints in the sense that they're going to qualify for the celestial or the terrestrial kingdoms now what's going to happen is <clears throat> the battle of gog and magog is going to come to an end as this camp of the saints, i.e. celestial people, have gathered. And, and this is a little bit like the gathering of uh, Nephites at the Hill Cumorah. So you have the, the last of the Nephites who gather together and surrounding them are, is going to be this massive army of Lamanites who in this context would represent the sons of perdition. And they're going to wipe out these uh, these saints as they come against them here in uh, in the millennial city that would be Old Jerusalem. And it's important to note here that we're not talking now about the New Jerusalem in in Missouri. So when we talk about the beloved city, this is Old Jerusalem. This is the city that I described a moment ago. That is the religious capital of what is Old Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem that we frequently refer to as Zion in Missouri, you have to understand <clears throat> that the Lord never allows wickedness to overtake the New Jerusalem once it is established. That was true in the days of Enoch. And so rather than allow Zion in Enoch's day to be overtaken by the wicked people around it, they were taken up into heaven. And the same is going to be true as we come to the end of the millennium at the time of the end of the celestial resurrection. It's not only that the celestial, the last of the celestial people are going to be resurrected and taken up from the earth, they're taking their city with them. Zion will be taken up at the end of the millennium before the little season. And unfortunately, old Jerusalem gets to hang around on the earth for the final conflict and it becomes the center of the battle of Gog and Magog in the same way that old Jerusalem is the center for Armageddon as the war before the second coming of Jesus Christ. So all of these things have their parallels and one is a uh, pattern for the other. 
and so it's all comparable. So this, this idea that you have the camp of the saints under siege at Old Jerusalem, it has many likenesses. And I've already mentioned the, the Nephites at the Hill Cumorah in 385 AD. It's similar to Armageddon when the Gentile nations surround the Jews at uh, Old Jerusalem and uh, Zechariah describes how half of the Jews are going to be destroyed during that abomination of desolation that occurs as the uh, uh, second coming is about to come when Jesus Christ will come down on the Mount of Olives. It's also similar to the abomination of desolation in 70 AD when the Jews were surrounded by the Romans and Jerusalem was destroyed. It's also set forth in the allegory of Zenos found in Jacob chapter 5 in the Book of Mormon. And I'm going to put up the uh, slide of what that verse says. So starting in Jacob 576, it says, quote, For behold, a long time, and what we're referring to by this long time is the millennium, for a long time I will lay up of the fruit of my vineyard unto mine own self against the season which speedily cometh, and for the last time have I nourished my vineyard, and pruned it, and dug about it, and dunged it. Wherefore, I will lay up unto mine own self of the fruit for a long time, again the millennium, according to that which I have spoken. And now we're about to start talking about the little season. And continues, And when the time cometh, that evil fruit shall again come into my vineyard, then will I cause the good and the bad to be gathered, and the good I will preserve unto myself, and the bad will I cast away into its own place. And then cometh the season and the end, and my vineyard will I cause to be burned with fire. Now, close quote. If I tell you that essentially this is talking about the millennium, is talking about the little season, uh, is talking about the end of the earth when he gathers the good and then the bad. Uh, he preserves the good unto himself, the bad he casts away to his own place. And I tell you, that's talking about these celestial saints who are the good fruit. And he's talking about the bad fruit that represents the sons of perdition. And he's going to burn the, with fire the vineyard. He's talking about the burning at the end of the earth. All of these things make perfect sense and is perfectly described in uh, the wonderful allegory of Zenos here in uh, at the very last verses in Jacob chapter 5. And so that confirms what we're essentially talking about here at the end of the earth. And it's the same harvest model that exists at the end of the second woe in uh, Revelation chapter 14 verses 15 through 20. You'll recall in those verses we had the exaltation worthy saints who were harvested first before the mortal sons of perdition were destroyed. And we find the same scriptural patterns in uh, Ezekiel chapter 38 that also gives more detail about the battle of the great God that I'm not going to go into in great detail. So what we have here in Revelation 20 verses 7 through 10 is essentially an abbreviated summary of the more detailed visions that you can find in Ezekiel chapter 38. And all of the descriptions of Armageddon by the same token tend to also be a mere image reflection of the battle of the great God at the end of the earth. So much so that sometimes 
people refer to Armageddon as the Battle of Gog and Magog as well, and because there are very many similarities that uh, <clears throat> describe them. So what we get as the, uh, the Battle of Gog and Magog comes to uh, an end is we get fire coming down from God out of heaven to devour the mortal armies of Gog and Magog. And this is the bad fruit that is talked about in the allegory of Zenos. But before the fire comes down and destroys the bad fruit, we first have to have the celestial saints preserved in the same way that before we destroyed the mortal sons of perdition in chapter 14, we first had to preserve the celestial worthy and exaltation worthy people in uh, Revelation chapter 14. And so all of these things are consistent and there is a pattern that exists to them. And what essentially this suggests using our typology is just before uh, the sons of perdition are destroyed with fire, the celestial saints are going to be resurrected in the twinkling of an eye. So what we have is uh, <clears throat> everybody's gathered to the quote-unquote hill Cumorah, right? In other words, old Jerusalem. The celestial saints have gathered to old Jerusalem where they are under siege by these mortal sons of perdition called the armies of Gog and Magog, and they're about to be destroyed by the mortal sons of perdition, but voila, we have them resurrected in the twinkling of an eye before the fire comes down and destroys the mortal sons of perdition. Now, is that stated specifically in scripture and is a matter of LDS doctrine? No, this is taken from the typology that exists in uh, the what happens at Armageddon and what is described in uh, the allegory of Zenos, uh, which if you kind of put all these things together and also information taken from Ezekiel chapter 38, uh, this all lends to this conclusion that before the fire comes down and destroys the mortal sons of perdition, celestial saints uh, are resurrected. And that's the morning of the last resurrection or the morning of the resurrection of the unjust. And they all get brought up, taken up, and uh, preserved. The Lord preserves them unto himself before he then is going to destroy the uh, mortal sons of perdition at the end of the earth. And when that occurs, that's truly the, the death of the earth. The, the earth will die by fire, and it dies by fire because the Lord is coming out down and cleaning house of all of these mortal sons of perdition. The, uh, this is an allusion essentially to what happened in the time of Sodom and Gomorrah when God rained down fire and destroyed all of these uh, wicked people. And so we see that uh, as a recurring theme here again at the end of the earth. And so when the consuming fire destroys the mortal armies of Gog and Magog, that's the physical part of the battle that will end. Then you're going to get Michael and his heavenly host who are going to defeat Satan and his unembodied spirits who are the instigators of everything that is going on that is evil and is direct the directing power 
behind the mortal sons of perdition, and then they're all going to get cast into the lake of fire as recorded in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, which is uh, quoted as follows. Quote, quote, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Close quote. Now, this is a, an important verse because, again, this ties back the concept that I was talking about earlier, where we have the beast, who is Cain, as, the, as its spiritual head, and the false prophet with Judas Iscariot as its spiritual head that get cast into the lake of fire and brimstone in Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. They don't come out at the beginning of the little season to fight this battle. Only Satan and his unembodied spirits do. But what we learn now is, as the little season comes to an end, the devil and his unembodied spirits are going to be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet already are. They were already there from Revelation 19.20. And so now they're going to join them, and this then becomes a permanent condition. And so this is how we know that the beast and the false prophet and their disembodied spirit followers don't participate in the battle of the great God after the millennium. And so that's just some information that is helpful for us to understand. And uh, essentially, by way of summary, what you have in Revelation chapter 20, verse 9, is you have the end of the physical battle of the great God, or Gog and Magog, when all celestial saints resurrect in the twinkling of an eye, and all mortal sons of perdition are devoured by fire. And then in Revelation 20, 10, the very next verse, we have the conclusion to the spiritual battle of the great God where Satan and his unembodied spirits are cast into the lake of fire at the end of uh, the battle. And all of this is very consistent with uh, and parallels the battle of Armageddon, which is both a temporal battle and also a spiritual battle. And in the temporal or physical battle of Armageddon, we get the description of that in uh, Revelation chapter 8. And then we get a description of the spiritual battle of Armageddon in Revelation chapter 16, which a lot of people sometimes combine into a single battle that they don't distinguish between what's physical and what's spiritual. But in all cases, that's something that uh, you necessarily have to do. All right, so we're going to try and pick up the pace here just a little bit. Uh, as we go into Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, it states, quote, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, and from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no, there was found no place for them. Close quote. In this verse, we get a description of the earth actually dying. So this follows the uh, uh, resurrection of all the mortal sons of perdition. They've died in uh, Revelation 10, but they've also, in the interim between these verses, they've also been resurrected. And how do we know that? Well, we know that because the earth is also dying. So the sons of perdition die, and they die also at the time that the earth is dying. And uh, when that all occurs, the next thing that is going to happen is we're getting ready to judge all of the mortal sons of perdition. And verse 11 is essentially a prelude 
to Christ's final judgment. So it's going to be Christ who's sitting on this great white th throne. And uh, when the earth uh, uh, flees away so that it no, has no more place, that's a description of the earth dying and its elements disintegrating into their native uh, form. It doesn't mean that the elements uh, will be destroyed or annihilated. That doesn't happen. You can't destroy matter and both physical element and spiritual element are indestructible and they are eternal, but they will melt with fervent heat and uh, that will be part of the purification process as the earth gets ready to be celestialized. So we have the elements of the earth and the heaven flee away and uh, I could get into more detail, but uh, we'll, I'll get into that later on as we uh, come back and talk about these uh, verses in particular. As we move on to Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, it says, quote, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Now, a lot of people confuse this with the concept that this is a final judgment of all people, and it's not. That, that would not be consistent with John's chronological accounting of events as he's going through his visions. Now, it is true that uh, all people are going to be subject to a final judgment, which essentially consists of an evaluation of their works and an accounting to God. However, the final judgment comes for each person at the time they are resurrected because when a body is resurrected, it is resurrected to the glory that it merits. And so at that time, their status must be fixed. So what you have essentially, because you have different stages of the resurrection, what you're going to have are stages or series of final judgments. So for example, when Christ was resurrected and there were a large number of people resurrected with him in the morning of the first resurrection, consisting of only exaltation-worthy saints, their status was fixed. They qualified in their mortal lives for exaltation in the celestial kingdom. And so when they were resurrected, the type of body they got was an exalted body that uh, would allow them to rule and reign with Christ and to dwell and be part of the highest degree of glory in the celestial kingdom. Their status was fixed. They had to have a final judgment determine that. It's not like they could be resurrected in the time of Christ and then thousands of years later after the millennium and the little season, oh, now you have to come back for a uh, final judgment because we want to figure out, I guess it's like we wanted to figure out whether you really deserve the, bo the body or not, right? No, it was known. They were fixed from long ago. And so we're not getting here a judgment of celestial people. The celestial judgment ends uh, with the celestial resurrection before the little season even begins. The same is true of terrestrial people. Even telestial people are already judged before we get to this point in John's chronological account because here he's talking now about the destruction of the mortal sons of perdition and the earth is dying as fire comes down and devours all these mortal sons of perdition. And the next thing we see is 
the preparations are made for a final judgment, and now the dead, small, and great stand before God. Well, these dead, small, and great are mortal sons of perdition, and sons of perdition as we move down to verse 13 more generally. And so this, this verse is essentially talking about the judgment of wicked people who become sons of perdition in mortality. They are the fourth and last group in the resurrection of the uh, human family. Now, there are those who disagree with this, and they're going to say that uh, this is a final judgment for all people. Uh, some say recognizing that, yeah, there has to be a final judgment associated with the uh, resurrection of people. Therefore, these verses kind of describe a formality or a ceremonial setting for um, the judgment. And, and in that sense, it would be kind of akin to, you know, going to uh, college and you get your degree um, and that's predetermined before you ever walk, right? You have the formality of, oh, I'm going to walk, <laughs> you know, and, uh, <clears throat> and that's kind of a, uh, a ceremonial kind of thing. But the, we always used to tease going through high school and say, hey, is your diploma actually signed? <laughs> <laughs> and so you, you, you can do the formal stuff, but the, at the end of the day, you want to open up your diploma, your uh, graduating certificate or whatever it might be, and you want to actually see is it signed or not. Um, and some people say that that's the case. I, I don't see really uh, the purpose. I'm not saying that it isn't possible that that doesn't happen, but uh, there's really no use for any kind of formal ceremony because... Uh, for some people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who've gone on to their glory at the time of their resurrection in the meridian of time, but we're going to have them come back now and say, you get to walk? I don't know. Uh, at any rate, but one thing is for sure. These verses are not describing the celestial uh, resurrection, the celestial judgment or anything like that. These are all uh, essentially a discussion of the, res the judgment that accompanies the, su the sons of perdition. Now, as I mentioned in, in 2013, we were talking specifically about those who were mortal sons of perdition, but we have different types of sons of perdition, uh, and each of them is described in Revelation chapter 20, verse 13, which says, quote, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works, close quote. Now, this verse is consistent with a, I think, a well-recognized doctrine that people stand before their judge, their maker, um, in the flesh, unless you're an unembodied spirit, um, in your resurrected condition, all right? And so... As we're talking here about the, the sea gave up the dead, the death and hell delivered up the dead, the concept is they're going through this stage where they're getting ready to come forth to stand before their judge. And if they are disembodied spirits, they will be resurrected so that they can stand in the flesh before their judge to be judged according to their works. Now, Revelation 20.13 actually identifies three different types of dead, if you will, that are being raised to stand before their judge. So on the one hand, you have the sea giving up the dead, but you also have 
death as the second group, and the third group, hell, that are also delivering up the dead. Now, some people are just going to say that these all metaphorically describe the physical grave. So, in other words, you have a certain number of people who died upon the sea and uh, a physical death, and so they're going to be raised to uh, be judged. You have a certain number of people that died on land, um, whatever. I mean, this is what they kind of come up with, but they fail to distinguish that there are three different groups among the sons of perdition, each of which have to receive their judgment. And so I'm going to talk about these uh, just so that you can understand that when you read this verse, you can understand that we're still talking here, not about the dead, generally speaking, but specifically sons of perdition. So group number one is you have the dead whom the sea gave up, which were in it, all right? And so this particular group represents the unembodied sons of perdition that rebelled with Lucifer in the premortal existence. Now, they're not rising to a resurrection. They don't get resurrected because they never had a body to begin with. They were never allowed to be born on this earth, and they're certainly not going to be given a body, uh, a secondhand body, <laughs> a secondhand body or something at the time of the resurrection. They never get a body, all right? But we have the sea giving up the dead. So what does that mean? It means that they are called forth because they are spiritually dead and have been since the time of the Grand Council when they rebelled. But the sea is a symbol that is used to describe this group because it is their habitation on earth. That's what symbolically the sea is. It's the abyss, right? It is the bottomless pit. And so the, the sea is kind of a synonym for this place where unembodied spirits exist until the resurrection and the judgment. They come forth for their judgment from the sea or from their abyss, their bottomless pit, to stand before Christ as disembodied spirits for their judgment. They're the first group. Now, arguably, they could be judged by the Father because keep in mind when these unembodied spirits rebelled at the time of the Grand Council, they never accepted Christ as the Redeemer, the Creator, or a judge. And having refused to accept him in the past, it could, be, it could very well be that they will come to stand before God the Father himself uh, because they never accepted the Savior. Now, it, there's nothing to say that in the scriptures. This verse doesn't say who the identity of the judge is for these three particular groups. It just says they have to come forth to be judged every man according to their works. But arguably, the judge that these unembodied spirits would stand before could be God the Father because they never accepted Jesus Christ uh, from the time of the Grand Council. So then we have the second group that uh, is identified in this verse. And uh, the first group is the where it says death and hell delivered up the dead. The one we're going to focus on now with group number two is death because you have to distinguish between death and hell. And again, a lot of people just say, oh, this is just kind of symbolism. It's metaphor. It's almost poetic. Um, and I take a more literal interpretation of it that no, death and hell are two separate places that are delivering up the dead. And so group number two is the death that delivers up the dead. 
And so this consists of those disembodied sons of perdition who were followers of the beast and followers of the false prophet um, who were banished to the lake of fire in Revelation 19 and 20. These are disembodied spirit sons of perdition that have been hanging out, uh, waiting for the end of the millennium, waiting for the end of the little season, and they've been sitting out in the lake of fire. They don't come back and participate in the little season, but when the little season is over, they have to be judged. They got, they got pudding in the lake of fire. They get to come back just long enough so the death, get, they get delivered up uh, to stand before their judge, who in this case should be Jesus Christ, because at least they accepted him in the premortal existence. And then when they came down to earth, they were so wicked and rebellious, they qualified themselves for sons of perdition because they committed the unpardonable sin. They get cast out, but now they're being judged. So they are death. They, they existed in a condition of spiritual death. Um, and they're one group that are separate from the last group, which is hell, which delivers up the dead. Now, the distinction between death and hell is that, keep in mind, the mortal sons of perdition that live after the millennium and during the millennium, and as you approach the end of the millennium, going into the little season, they, they die and they get cast into the post-mortal spirit world, which we call hell. It's called spirit prison. Uh, and when they enter hell, they, are, they don't go to the lake of fire, right? That's where the beast and everybody who were mortal sons of perdition as of the second coming, that's where all those guys went. But then on the other hand, when we get to the end of the little season, we have a whole bunch more of them that have now qualified themselves to be sons of perdition. When they die, they don't go to the, the lake of fire. They go to the post-mortal spirit world, to spirit prison. And so they are literally in hell as disembodied spirits. And uh, so now when it's time to be judged, when they are resurrected and it's time for their judge, we pull them out of the post-mortal spirit world or hell and now they stand before Jesus Christ to be judged of uh, their sins that qualify them to be cast out into the lake of fire with the, the beast and the false prophet. And they're all one big happy, or I guess I should say one big unhappy family in the lake of fire, which is also synonymous with outer darkness. And that's where they go. And that's how you get these three divisions. They all they're just not words on a page that don't really mean stuff or they have the same meaning. They Each word means something. And to me, it seems perfectly and crystal clear that the first group are going to be the unembodied spirits that come from the abyss, from the sea. The second group is death, who are relegated to the lake of fire at the time of the second coming with the, the beast who is Cain, the false prophet who is Judas. And then the third group, of sons of perdition, which are literally still in hell in the post-mortal spirit world because they just died. And this all happens really, really fast, right? 
the time period between when the earth dies, the mortal sons of perdition are devoured up by fire that comes down from heaven. Their spirits go into the post-mortal spirit world for a brief time, but it's not very much time elapses between, oh, we got to pull you out of the post-mortal spirit world. We got to resurrect you. And now having pulled you out of hell, you're going to stand before Jesus Christ, who's going to judge you and you get cast out into the uh, lake of fire along with the, the other disembodied uh, spirit sons of perdition. So that's, that's what happens. Now, after the, uh, these three groups of sons of perdition are resurrected um, and then judged, um, then that's going to complete the, the resurrection of all humankind. We'll be done with the celestial. We're done with terrestrial that happened at the end of the millennium. Then we're going to have the telestial people from all ages, some of whom get changed in the twinkling of an eye just before fire devours the mortal sons of perdition. They all get wiped out and die. They get resurrected. They get judged. That's the end of the, the resurrection of the human family in four different stages, celestial, terrestrial, telestial, and sons of perdition. After we have the resurrection, of the uh, the human family in these four stages, we got to resurrect everything else. We've got to resurrect all of the uh, the animals. We have to resurrect plants. We even have to resurrect all of the uh, the worlds that are also living souls and have this inward spirit that is clothed upon by an outward physical body. And uh, I'm going to leave for another occasion a more complete discussion of the order of resurrection that has to happen because while it's kind of simple uh, when you're thinking about this world by itself that the after the resurrection of the human family will resurrect animals will resurrect plants we're going to resurrect this earth itself that's kind of easy and pretty straightforward but then you have to add the complexity that uh, within this generation of our heavenly father's creations we have countless worlds that have been created by the Father spiritually, countless worlds that have been created by Jesus Christ physically, um, and all of that, that resurrection also has to happen. That's all part of the infinite atonement that will redeem everything physically that Christ created. His infinite atonement is going to redeem all of his creation. So it starts to get a little complex, and I'm going to leave for another day a discussion of how this order of resurrection occurs, taking into consideration the people, plants, animals, and mineral worlds uh, of all of Christ's creations that he's organized ever since the, uh, the time when the physical creation began. And it's all going to be dictated by uh, the law of obedience and the things going in descending order of intelligence, including animals, plants, and then worlds. And I, I'm just going to leave you with this one little snippet uh, just to help you kind of comprehend what we're talking about. Because I've talked before about the concept of the order of creation, how the spirit creation began with Jesus Christ as the most intelligent 
of all intelligences, and that was the reason why he qualified to be the first of all God's spirit creations. And then it went down from there uh, in descending intelligences to, you know, these spirits who were born in the morning of the uh, creation and were called morning stars or sons of the morning. And, and it goes down. And after we get through the spiritual creation of all human spirits, we've got to have the spirit creation of all animals in their descending order, then plants in their descending order, and then worlds in their descending order, and then everything in the order of creation after the last of the last worlds is created by Jesus Christ in this generation. We have to then have the physical creation that reverses. The first shall be last and the last shall be first, as dictated by the 29th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. And so the order of physical creation reverses itself. And then after we now have reached the point of having the resurrection of the human family, we start with the most intelligent first. Christ is the first again to be resurrected. And after him... You have the exaltation-worthy saints, and then we have celestial saints, and then we have terrestrial saints, and then telestial saints, and then sons of perdition. And after the class of human spirits are resurrected, we proceed again in descending order of resurrection with animals, plants, and worlds. And this world that we live on, this earth, which I've talked about how Kolob is the spirit world within this earth as the most intelligent of all worlds, it gets resurrected first. And so as a world, this earth will resurrect first. And then after this earth is resurrected, the resurrection of worlds, countless worlds that Jesus has created will continue in their descending order of intelligence. So that just gives you kind of a framework in which to try and kind of wrap your mind around how this whole resurrection process works. And uh, I will separately get into the details. Again, this is one of those things you kind of have to look at from the 30,000 foot elevation and kind of take it on faith for right now. But I will eventually talk about separately as we continue these podcasts, I'll talk about the order of creation. I'll talk about the uh, order of resurrection. I'll talk about the uh, the law of earthly ordinances and how that factors into all of these things. And the last thing I'll leave you with, if you want to kind of go outside and uh, just try and understand this and put some context into this, is go back and read uh, Doctrine and Covenants section 88 verses 51 through 61, which is a parable that uh, was revealed to Joseph Smith. I call it the parable of the Lord of the Fields because what it essentially describes is the ministry of Jesus Christ on all the physical worlds that he created. And it talks about the sequential order of his ministry on these various worlds. And again, I'm going to talk about that specifically in more detail in a future day, but that will kind of help you to put some context into this concept of how these various worlds fit into the order of creation, how they fit into the order of resurrection, and many of the things that we're kind of discussing at the 30,000 foot level. Okay, with that, I'm going to leave chapter 20. We're going to move on to uh, Revelation chapter 21, which is a description of the celestialized earth. Again, that's because we're moving 
chronologically through this. We've gotten through the resurrection now, the death of the earth, the resurrection of the earth, and this is now John's vision of what the resurrected earth looks like. So starting out in Revelation 21.1, it says, quote, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And so I'm going to just kind of tell you that uh, this is describing the celestialized earth, um, but a lot of people sometimes interpret this as the transfigured earth at the start of the millennium. And a new heaven and a new earth can describe both conditions. That is, at the time of the second coming, when the earth was transfigured into a terrestrial world from what was a telestial world, we had a new heaven and a new earth. And uh, as we now go from a terrestrial millennial condition to the celestialization of the earth, we again have a new heaven and a new earth. So the same term can describe both. But in this context, we know that we're not talking about the second coming. That was back in chapter 19. We're talking now about the earth after the millennium, which happened in chapter 20. Since we're in chapter 21, these events have to come after the second coming, or excuse me, after the millennium. Just keep that in mind and keep the chronology in mind at all times, and then you never confuse yourself about what's really going on and what is being described when these terms are being used here. The only other thing I want to just mention quickly about this, there's a reference here in this verse to the fact that there was no more sea. Some interpret this literally in the sense that uh, the old sea has become a new sea in some matter. Uh, some say that there's been some reconfiguration of the oceans that now exist or that there's no sea at all. But it, this is a symbolic term that is being used here. It's kind of like a moment ago we were talking about how the, uh, the uh, sea gives up the dead for the judgment. The sea that we're using here in this verse again is a symbolic sea that typically uh, stands for hostile nations, enemies, chaos, tumult. Um, and so in addition to the idea that the sea means the abyss or the habitation of evil spirits, the absence of a sea on the celestialized earth means there's no bad guys. There's no, there are no evil spirits. There is no abyss. There's no habitation for uh, unembodied sons of perdition. So essentially the absence of a sea in this context means that there is no evil or source of evil on the resurrected earth. And that's kind of in its simplest terms what it means. But we'll circle back and talk about that some more at a later time. If we go on to Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, John says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Close quote. So what we have here is an image of the New Jerusalem that is to be built on the American continent that comes down from God out of heaven. And it descends out of heaven after the millennium. That is, after the earth dies and is resurrected, New Jerusalem or Zion will literally come down from heaven with its exalted inhabitants. Now, this occurs twice. 
Uh, it occurs before the millennium when the city of Enoch comes down to earth at the time of the second coming. And then it's going to happen again at the end of the millennium, in the end of the little season, Well, it will come down as a celestial city. Now, the two events are sufficiently similar that many people will say that Revelation 21-2 is the coming down of New Jerusalem or Zion before the millennium, but they, they fail to recognize the chronological sequence of events that John is describing. And essentially what we have is it happens twice, all right? And so what that means is, as I've said before, in order for New Jerusalem or Zion to descend from heaven after the earth dies and at the time of its resurrection, it means New Jerusalem slash Zion needs to be taken up at the end of the millennium. And this is what I told you previously. And now this verse confirms that view that how could it come down from heaven if it was on the earth during the millennium and it was never taken up, it can't possibly come down again. So that means at the end of the millennium, at the time of the celestial resurrection, when all celestial worthy saints are taken up, well, they got to go up with their city Zion and it goes away. And again, as I mentioned before, that doesn't happen with Jerusalem, old Jerusalem. It's not taken up again. And uh, at least at the beginning of the uh, millennium, but it will be taken up uh, at the end of the uh, earth when the telestial resurrection is complete because Jerusalem itself will come down again. It just has to survive through the period of the little season. Okay, so essentially we have uh, Zion coming down uh, at the time of the celestialization of the earth. Uh, new Old Jerusalem, because it's taken up at the time of the telestial resurrection, will also come down from heaven. And these are described separately. The return of New Jerusalem is described in Revelation 21-2 as the holy city New Jerusalem, the old Jerusalem comes down again in Revelation 20:10 as the great city, the holy Jerusalem. So some people say that these verses are essentially describing the same city and the same event. But again, I'm beating a, a horse again, I know. John's visions are chronological and they don't repeat. And so what we're hearing and what we're seeing is a description of two separate cities coming down at two separate times in their chronological order with New Jerusalem coming down first and Old Jerusalem coming down second. Now, having said that, I will say that these sister cities are so much alike in their makeup that John's symbolic description of one tends to be a symbolic description of the other. So I'm not going to go through in great detail uh, talking about the symbols that John uses to describe these cities, but just keep in mind that most of the description correlates to his description of Old Jerusalem, but that effectively is a description of the, the first New Jerusalem or Zion because they're sister cities and they, they're mere images of each other. So he doesn't need to describe them twice. He describes one, but just we in our understanding need to recognize that, oh, if I were to describe the other, I'd be saying exactly the same thing. All right. So now Revelation 21, 2 says this, quote, And I, John, 
saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, close quote. Jesus Christ, of course, in this context is the bridegroom, the same as he was in Revelation 19, verses 17, 7 and 8, when he stood on Mount Zion with his heavenly bride and they came down. We had the marriage supper uh, that occurs in Revelation 19. And so uh, some people once again say, oh, what I'm reading here in 21.2 about this bride, it's the same bride. Well, yes, sorta, and no. Um, the reason it is the same bride is because the bride of Christ is always exaltation-worthy saints. They're the ones that have the marriage relationship with Jesus Christ as the bridegroom. So in that sense, yeah, it's the same bride. But the difference is the bride at the time of the second coming consisted of all exaltation-worthy saints who could stand with him on Mount Zion as of the second coming. There are a lot of people that live during the millennium, that are born during the millennium, that qualify themselves for exaltation and to be called the bride of Christ throughout the thousand-year period of the millennium. So the bride being described here in Revelation 21-2 is all exaltation-worthy people, including those that were his bride at the time of the second coming, plus everyone who has become so qualified throughout the period of the millennium. So yes, they are, many of them can be the same, but there's also a lot of new additions to this imagery or symbol of the bride because the way people live during the period of the millennium. So you just kind of have to keep those differences in mind and the differences in the symbols, although they are very similar, they are separated by a thousand years of history and the two brides are not identical in terms of the exaltation-worthy people who are the brides of Christ. All right, let's jump ahead a little bit here to uh, Revelation uh, chapter 21, verse 9, which states, quote, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. Now, what's interesting about this verse is that the angel that is coming to talk to John and says, come hither, I got some more stuff to show you. It's the same angel that came to John in Revelation 17.1. He's one of these guys that had the seven vile plagues. He said, hey, come follow me. I want to show you this great whore. And that's what he was shown in Revelation chapter 17. Now he's come back again in Revelation 21.9, only this time, instead of showing John a vision of the great whore, which is also modern Babylon, he's now showing him the opposite, an antithetical image of the bride who is the lamb's wife. All right. And so it seems like the guy who seems to know most about the great whore, who is the antithesis of the lamb's wife, is also the guy who's most qualified to talk about the lamb's wife. He knows both of these women just perfectly. And so he's the guy that gets to describe them. Now, uh, in Revelation 21, verses 12 through 21, what we get is a symbolic description of the celestial city which is essentially the entire earth. So all of the earth is the celestial kingdom, and John describes it in symbolic terms as though it were this great city, 
okay? And technically speaking, there's two of them. Now, keep in mind, these verses are specific to a description of old Jerusalem, but because that city mirrors the image of New Jerusalem or Zion, the description that you see in these verses is essentially the symbolic equivalent of a description of New Jerusalem as well. And so in this you have a, a wall, it's uh, 144 cubits, cubits, which is 216 feet. And you get to that 144 because of 12 times 12, which is the priesthood number. You got to go back to your numer all your numbers. And I did a podcast on uh, numerical symbols. And you might want to refresh your course, go back and listen to all of that, because you'll know that this 144 comes from the multiplication of 12 times 12, 12 being a priesthood number. Symbolism, you can read a lot into it and understand a lot simply by recognizing the symbolic nature of the numbers. Now, what's interesting about this wall is that 216 feet sounds like it's pretty tall, but when you compare it against the size of the city that is described as being 12,000 furlongs, that essentially equates to 1,500 miles. And it's not only that the city is used as that dimension, it's uh, a cube. So it's 12,000 furlongs high uh, width, depth, it's a cube. And, and so essentially, if you translate these furlongs, into miles, this city is 1,500 miles in all directions. And so where do we get the 12,000 furlongs? Oh, 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. Go back and study your, your numbers again and you'll start to get a sense of the symbolism. But the bottom line is that we have a wall that is 216 feet high that's supposedly surrounding and protecting a city that is 1,500 miles in all directions. <laughs> so the, the, the wall sounds big, but relatively speaking, it's nothing. And the reason is, is because uh, the city doesn't need a wall. A wall is for the defense of the city, and it is so small and insignificant that the message is that we don't really need to protect this city. And, and in the celestial kingdom, nothing is at war with this city. It's peace and it's uh, there's no reason to have this massive wall protecting it. But that that's just something that you need to understand. It, it goes on and describes how there are 12 gates, there are 12 angels that have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, they're always open. Again, if you have the gates of the city is always open, it means that there's no danger or any threat to the city. Uh, the foundation is built of 12 precious stones. You start to get the sense or the image that there are a lot of 12s in this celestial city. And again, it's because it's the priesthood number, and that has to deal with the patriarchal order of the priesthood. And so we get a lot of discussion about the 12 tribes of Israel because the patriarchal order is structured and organized according to the 12 tribes of Israel, which has been true of it ever since the pre-mortal existence when the house of Israel was known uh, as, a, as a people in heaven uh, before the earth was even created. And we get that in the 32nd section of the book of Deuteronomy. So that's just a little bit of kind of an introduction, if nothing more, to some of the symbolism that you're going to encounter 
as you read chapter uh, 21 verses uh, 12 through 22. One other noteworthy thing is found in uh, Revelation 21 verse 22 where it says, quote, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Close quote. And so of all the things that John sees, and we've had many, many images of temples in heaven, um, but here when we finally get down to the celestialized earth, John tells us, I didn't see a temple. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is it explains to us that uh, the Father and the Son, who is the Lamb, are the temple. So their actual presence is on the new earth and uh, they become the anti-type for their spiritual presence in earthly temples. So today we go to the temple because we want to feel the Spirit of the Lord. And that's the closest thing that we can come to, to having his presence on earth as we go to these earthly temples. But when we get to the celestial kingdom, they will both be present. And so we don't really need this exterior form of a building uh, because we will be in their presence and the entire earth then essentially becomes a celestial temple. Now, the other reason why we don't need a temple in heaven, of course, is because uh, in this fallen celestial earth, uh, we have temples to perform gospel ordinances for the living and the dead. And so we have to have them because if we didn't, we would not be able to perform the earthly ordinances necessary to exalt us in the celestial kingdom, or even in the case of baptism to qualify us to go into the celestial kingdom as unexalted people. Well, by the time we get to this point in Revelation chapter 21, everybody's resurrected. The law of earthly ordinances has been fulfilled or it has not. And if it has not, you're not going to qualify to get in. But if you have received your gospel ordinances and you're in the celestial kingdom, we don't need a temple for the performance of gospel ordinances because it's all done. It's fini, all right? And so we don't need to have a temple for that purpose. And all of the people have uh, become perfected. All right, so as we move on, to Revelation uh, chapter 21, verse 23, it says this, quote, And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Now this really comes as no surprise, and the imagery is not difficult to recognize that the earth is filled with the fullness of God's light and glory, such that it has no need of a sun, moon, to shine in it. Um, and in fact, the fullness of light in the resurrected earth will exist because it will be rolled back into the presence of God and the glorified earth itself will become its own brilliant sun. And the fullness of this light comes from the glory of God and the Lamb. That is the light of Christ, whose source is ultimately God the Father, but flows through the instrumentality of Jesus Christ, such that it emanates from the Father through the Son, filling all of the celestial realm with the fullness of their celestial light and glory. And so, uh, in a certain extent, it goes to the immensity of space, but in this context, it's limited to the celestial kingdom, because kingdoms such as the terrestrial kingdom and the celestial kingdom do not receive the fullness of the Father. So they don't get the fullness of light and glory in the celestial kingdom 
but this light and this glory will extend to all celestial worlds without end, including all multi-generational celestial kingdoms that exist in the immensity of space. And so uh, you have to think of this in a much broader sense. It's not just that this celestial earth is one earth and it shines like crazy. It shines its light and shares its light with all other worlds of the celestial kingdom as well. Now moving on to uh, Revelation chapter uh, 21-24, I want to make one brief distinction about something in this verse just again to help you have an understanding of the context of what it's saying, and then you can go back and, and dig into it a little bit more. This verse says, quote, And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. Close quote. Now the nations and kings of the earth are two separate groups that are described in this verse, but they are both of the tribes of Israel. Okay, and so as we were going through my very brief discussion of the symbolism of the celestial kingdom, we had 12 gates. Each of the gates had the names of the tribes of Israel on them. And so if you are exaltation worthy, you can pass through the gate with your family name. Uh, but you also have unexalted angels who are also of the house of Israel that can pass through the gates, but they are not kings, all right? And I've made that distinction previously. In order to be a king and a queen to rule and reign with Jesus Christ, you've got to be exaltation worthy. So in this verse, the kings of the earth, we're talking here about exaltation worthy people. And then you have the nations of the earth, which are not kings. And so John makes this distinction. And so the unexalted angels are called the nations of them which are saved. Now notice how they walk in the light of it, meaning the light of the celestial kingdom. Okay, uh, But the, the exalted kings of the earth, on the other hand, do bring their glory and honor into it. And that distinction is very clear and well understood, but that's what these verses are talking about. The nations are those who are worthy Israelites. They're not exaltation worthy, but they are celestial worthy. They come in and they get to walk in the light of the celestial kingdom. That is the fullness of the Father, the fullness of Jesus Christ. That is a blessing that they receive. But the kings themselves, because they have been exalted and have glory in themselves and dominions and honor and thrones and principalities, dominions without end and honor, once they are exalted and have that as their attributes, they bring that with them into the celestial kingdom and they bring their honor and glory into the city. And so that's what we're talking about. Essentially, this is a uh, verse that highlights the nature of the law of consecration, which is a celestial law and the law of the celestial kingdom. And by this law, the Father and the Son share the fullness of their light and glory with the kings and queens, priests and priestesses of the house of Israel. And by the same token, those kings, queens, priests and priestesses who are the children of light in the fullness sense then share their light and glory, their intelligence with the gods in the celestial kingdom. And in this way, the 
uh, honor and glory of the Father increases as the glory of his children are ascribed back to him or consecrated back to him. This is the nature of the meaning of what it means to be joint heirs with Jesus Christ. You share in his glory and all the glory that you have, you share back and forth. And by the same token, this shared glory and dominions of uh, God's children in this generation are shared back and forth with every generation. Every generation increases in glory and honor forever, um, and the glory of every generation is shared with exaltation-worthy people in every other generation. And so all of the, uh, the Elohim, as we call them, of every generation continues to increase in honor and glory all because of the celestial law of consecration, which is essentially, in its simplest terms, a share and share alike. Uh, that's what that, that essentially means. And that's the nature of how we arrive at this uh, concept of eternal increase, both uh, horizontally, up and down, vertically, uh, and so forth. All right, <clears throat> so now... Uh, let me kind of just give you a quick overview of Revelation chapter 22. We've gotten through most of the information, and I don't think this chapter is particularly difficult to understand and, and doesn't require a lot of overview by me. But uh, essentially, uh, the first five verses of this chapter give some additional uh, descriptions of the celestial cities um, without interruption from uh, chapter 21. And some of the details, what you find are the bookend description of the celestial earth and the paradisiacal earth at the time of the Garden of Eden. And so some of the common elements that you're going to run into are going to be a river and a tree of life. Uh, you're going to have God's presence on the earth and the concept that uh, there will be this removal of the curse that was uh, put in place uh, when Adam partook of the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, there are going to be these comparative uh, glory uh, of the Garden of Eden and the celestial earth. And that's what you're going to get in these first five verses. But it's all very much bookend kind of stuff. What we saw in the Garden of Eden being a foreshadow or a type of what we're ultimately going to see at the end of the day when the earth is celestialized. Now, Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 through 19 form what we call the epilogue for the book of Revelation. And it closely parallels the prologue that can be found in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And what you get in the epilogue is a confirmation of the truth of John's prophecies throughout the book of Revelation and the testimony of three witnesses, including an angel, John, and uh, Jesus Christ himself. You also get Christ declaring three different times in these few verses that he is going to come quickly. And so what that means is he's going to come to bless righteous people in their tribulations um, or because of their tribulations, both in their lifetimes when they die and also at the time of Christ's second coming and as they now enter into celestial glory here at the end of the book of Revelation. Uh, his coming to them will be uh, he comes with uh, his arms loaded 
with the blessings that he has promised and the, that are given to people by way of covenant. So you know, all people who enter into that covenant and come unto Christ will have eternal life. It, this also talks a little bit about the, uh, the fact that you're not supposed to add to or take away from the prophecy. And all of these things, I think, are pretty well understood. And I will get to them in uh, more detail uh, as I go through the individual verses. The final thing that happens in uh, Revelation chapter 22 is we get John's final apostolic benediction and prayer in the last two verses of the book of Revelation. And that, that's where we find ourselves here at the end of the book of Revelation and the uh, end of the uh, Come Follow Me uh, podcast for December 2024. Now, as I've said a number of times, I've had to kind of skip many of the details just because of the volume of material that uh, has to be covered in the very short month. And so uh, I've been promising you all along that uh, when we get through the end of uh, the book of Revelation, I was going to go back and uh, I'm going to go through verse by verse um, on the materials that I kind of had to skim over and just look at from a 30,000 foot mark. So starting on uh, January 6th and 7th, I'm going to start doing double podcasts. Uh, every week. These will be verse-by-verse -verse podcasts. They're also going to uh, correspond with specific sections in my book. And so many of you will be aware that I, I wrote a book uh, called The Doctrinal Commentary of the Book of Revelation, Unveiling Jesus Christ. You don't need to have the book to, uh, to listen to the podcast, but I'm just simply saying for those of you who may have the book, um, I'm going to do podcasts on specific sections of the book which are broken down in a verse-by-verse -verse way. So the book itself is a verse-by-verse document or doctrinal commentary. Um, and there are 378 sections that break down the various topics and verses in the book of Revelation. Now, what we, <laughs> we were kind of doing the math. And essentially, if I do two podcasts every week, that is 104 podcasts a year, and I do them for three and a half years, I'll be able to get through all seven, 378 sections of the book. So, uh, you know, I don't know if that comes as good news or bad news. If you're enjoying the podcast, you've got uh, some uh, listening security because it's going to take me three and a half years doing two podcasts a week. Now, these aren't going to be these hours-long podcasts because we're talking about individual verses um, many of them, I'm hoping, you know, 30 minutes, maybe an hour or so. But by the time we get done with this in, yes, three and a half years, and that, by the way, is a symbolic number. Uh, by the time we get done with this in three and a half years, um, you will be able to, if you have any question about any verse in the book of Revelations, you will be able to look up my podcast and maybe have a half hour or an hour discussion about that verse specifically by the time I'm finished. Now, if the verse you're interested in happens to be in chapter 20, <laughs> you're going to have to wait several years for us to get there. I'm sorry to say, but but we'll get there. But that's the game plan. And uh, so all of that is uh, going to occur. And so what it means is just by the time we get ready to study the book of Revelation again, as part of the Come Follow Me series in December 2028, you will have a lot of material at your fingertips to prepare you for understanding the book of Revelation even better than you do now. And um, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I'm looking forward to spending time with you. I hope that you find that these uh, 
podcasts are valuable if they're if they're not so much i will tell you this my life has been much enriched and blessed by my study of the book of revelation and by uh, understanding everything that john has to say and and as i was preparing my book for the last 14 years I just left no stone unturned. There was nothing that I would not allow myself to know about what John was saying. And uh, it has been such a blessing in my life. And I know that it can be in your life too. And I hope that somehow this will facilitate uh, your better understanding and the strengthening of your own testimony in uh, the, uh, the book of Revelation and ultimately in the Savior Jesus Christ, because that's really what it's all about. And so uh, I'll see you next week, and I'll see you for the next 190 weeks uh, as part of our unveiling uh, Jesus Christ. If you find that the these podcasts are valuable, I hope you'll subscribe and uh, share uh, your views on the podcast with others who might be blessed and benefited as we go into a new year and the next uh, three and a half years. So see you next week.